to explore the passage I quoted from earlier a bit further. I'll read it once again. Even though water is soft, it turns solid rock. It turns solid like a rock if stirred by wind. An ignorant mind, if stirred by thought, turns the formless into a solid entity. This passage evokes an aspect of early Buddhist teaching that is often obscure or even confused. The teaching of dependent co-origination, which describes how we react to experience with craving and then cling to our own subjectivity and give birth to egoism and suffering is uh, often explained in ways that span many lifetimes and don't always appear immediate, immediately relevant to our lives. The way I've just summarized it is, however, something that comes up over and over again each day. And therefore, we can mindfully observe it and follow the consequences, not in some uh, imagined future life, but actually in the future birth of a few seconds or moments later. But there's a part of this teaching on dependent co-origination that one seldom finds explained with much clarity. And this is at the very beginning. And that's what I'd like to talk about a little bit more and then also leave it for us to keep observing today. Unfortunately, in Buddhist history, teachings that are fairly subtle have often been overly theorized or turned into something uh, kind of scholarly and therefore uh, left, left aside and not always treated as opportunities for practice. So what I'm trying to emphasize is all of these things are susceptible to our own investigation and experience. And this does not necessarily require years of practice, at least uh, to begin noticing it, which is another com common fallacy that some of these teachings are only for so-called advanced practitioners. Uh, I'm usually skeptical about such claims because that's often 
in religious history and even in Buddhism been used as a way to uh, discourage people from going into the teachings for themselves. Although in in our country the tendency is often to um, not go into the teachings for other reasons, um, which I won't speculate on right now. So at the beginning of the teaching of dependent co-origination, at least in its most famous form, it begins with ignorance as condition, sankharas. That's a, a very neutral, straight um, translation with ignorance as conditions, sankharas. Or we can say with ignorance as conditions, sankharas happen or occur. So a word on ignorance as understood in early Buddhism, it's classically expressed as not understanding suffering, not understanding the causes or origin of suffering, not understanding the quenching or cessation of suffering, and not understanding the path, the middle way to the end of suffering. If we don't really get or see for ourselves what suffering's about, how it happens, how it can quench or be calmed, and the way of living, the way of being mindful and grounded and focused, intelligent, open-hearted, generous, and all that, as well as ethical. If we don't see that path, then a certain kind of concocting will continue to occur. And that's what I think is mentioned here in the passage I've been quoting, that the ignorant mind, when stirred by thought, takes the formless and turns it into the appearance of solid entities. Or as I'll explain shortly, we turn we turn the natural flow of experience into objects. And then once we create the illusion of objectivity, of course, in our culture, that's supposedly a good thing, except if you're an emotional, artistic person, then subjectivity's a good thing. And we get into one of our nice Western dichotomies and polarities, and we can argue which is, which is better or more true or more fun or more scientific or whatever. But such debates are kind of silly when it comes to Dhamma practice. But at the bottom of it is not knowing. Ignorance uh, need not be a judgmental term. Again, we need to be careful because Calling somebody ignorant can be the same as calling somebody stupid, and we consider that insulting. So if we hear these teachings and aren't mindful, we sort of identify as, oh, 
is this saying I'm ignorant notice we've already created an entity who's ignorant or an entity ie me that doesn't want to be called ignorant or doesn't want to consider the possibility of ignorance and so we get away from the point and get into ourselves again and our defendedness or our opinionatedness or our self-esteem issues and, and all that. But if we relax our difficulties with certain words like ignorance, which at root just means not knowing. Vicha is the kind of clear, profound knowing that allows liberation. Vicha and the Pali word for liberation, vimuti, often are a compound that goes together. Avicha is the absence of that kind of knowing. So it actually is, a, can be a kind of knowing. Ignorance can be confused knowing or unclear knowing, as well as the absence of true understanding. When there is this uh, foundation of not knowing, not understanding suffering, not understanding how to live without suffering, a certain concocting takes place. In some of the Tibetan tankas that picture the so-called wheel of life, which is a later Buddhist description of dependent co-origination, this part of the process is often portrayed by a potter making clay pots. And those pots are representative of Sankara's concoctions. As I said earlier, the old French word, oops, I think this is, yeah, it's recording. Um, the old French word is to cook together. But if here we have another image of a potter and we can think of some of our notions of creativity and activity going into the concocting, the, the sankara, the formations, if, if you like. And what happens is the focus when you're making something in this way and this is what I think this passage is getting to, that focus on the flow of experience sort of crystallizes or reifies or using the image of ice forming, solidifies into objects. And so with the ignorant mind does is it mistakes its own activity for reality and that the natural 
functions of mind, what we often call the five aggregates or the five khandas, feeling, uh, perceiving, concocting in consciousness or knowing. These basic mental activities uh, are misunderstood and we create a world of objects. Now, in a materialistic culture like ours, that's assumed to be the reality. And I'm not going to go the opposite direction and say it's unreal. I, I want to be careful about those swings from one opposite to another. But the point I want to bring up for our observation today is how awareness solidifies on certain things and we take that thing to be real. And one way uh, this shows up is once there seems to be this thing, we react to it. We can explore some of the reactivity further uh, later in the day. But the point I'm trying to highlight right now, and I know the point is rather subtle, but it's important and accessible because we're doing it all the time. If we start to watch how our mind will solidify or awareness will solidify around something, take uh, discomfort in part of the body, and awareness becomes notices the discomfort or pain. It maybe names it pain or whatever. And often something solidifies there. And it's taken to be a real thing or an object in the language I'm using. And so another pot has been spun or another lump of ice has been created. Now there's some further teachings on dependent co-origination that add a little detail to this. There are places where the Buddha, and these are in the Sanyutta Nikaya if anybody wants to look them up. The Buddha talks about one can think about something, one can ponder something, but consciousness need not descend. I'll, I'll speak a little bit about that further. But if one thinks of something, ponders it, and has intention regarding it, then consciousness descends. Now, in the traditional world, Buddhist view that's very concerned with explaining how rebirth occurs, this is understood in terms of so-called rebirth consciousness, even though the Buddha never used such a term. 
and I consider this an unnecessary interpolation into the early teaching. And it, it ends up being speculative. But something we can watch is how if in mental activity, thinking, pondering, and then when there's an intentionality towards something, the Pali word is jtati, it's a verb, intends, that focuses attention, kind of gets it stuck, which is how I'd like to think of consciousness descends. And therefore, aware consciousness, which here is sense consciousness, consciousness of a particular sense experience, kind of gets hooked or stuck. And out of that comes, in these passages I'm referring to, comes craving, clinging, becoming, birth, and suffering. So again, what I'm encouraging you to pay attention to during our sitting, our sits, the walks, and in between, is to note how awareness kind of gets stuck, how it gets hooked in certain experiences. And then the experience no longer flows. It can be a sound. There's just the sound, but yet often it gets spun into a, an object where instead of just sound passing through, and notice I'm not design, denying that there's sound, but it's assumed that there's a thing out there making the sound. And, and that's a level of interpretation. For many of us, it's taken to be common sense. Of course there's a thing out there making a sound. How would there be sound without it? But we're elaborating when we, there's, you know, somebody out there making a sound. Uh, when we meditate, this is kind of an easy one because sometimes we want to really quiet and the something making the sound become somebody or something distracting me. And then maybe irritability and aversion and so on follow. So it's no longer just a sound arising and passing away. There's a something. And then once you've got the something, you've got the somebody, in this case, the somebody being distracted, being impinged upon, and then that somebody becomes irritable, etc. And so along the way, craving, clinging, becoming, the becoming of me, and then the birth of, say, irritability, has occurred and there's suffering. Even in something as simple as a cough or a door that's 
closed with um, a little more noise than we would like and so on. So there are, as we meditate, there will be plenty of these. Sometimes it's a memory. And instead of just a memory coming up, whether due to firing of neurons or whatever the mechanism is, because we don't really know. It's funny, by the way, hearing people talking about their meditation experience in terms of neurons as if we actually experience the neurons. And sometimes we get confused where we overlay experience with, with these theories, which isn't to dispute the theory. It's just to point out how our thinking gets in there. And then all of a sudden people are talking about, I've heard people talk about experiencing their neurons. As far as I can tell, it's impossible. Um, we experience the results maybe of neurons doing their thing. And perhaps even experiencing that is dependent on neurons doing those, those things. But we never actually see any neurons or, as far as I can tell, feel them. So, but what we can, it seems to me, notice is a certain congealing and solidifying of experience into objects that hold attention. And once attention is held, certain liking and disliking take, can take place, and out of that, comes a kind of ignorant wanting it to be different or better or to stay the same or to go away or whatever, which is craving. And then the clinging is to our own subjectivity as a being, a me, a person experiencing this or having it happen to me. And that carries on with becoming and then birth into some egoistic state, such as greediness or worry, aversion, confusion, and so on, and therefore for suffering. So as we practice, be mindful of these potter, the potter making these objects. And especially notice any tendency to take it to be me doing it. And then we have the breath. One thing that's nice about the breath, especially as it relaxes and softens, it's pretty fluid. And we learn to hang out with the natural fluidity of the breath, not manipulating it, not improving it, just letting it do its, do its thing. And as we can just be aware of that, it's, it's something to come back to. But it's not that kind of objectified thing. We do that when we're sort of controlling the breath, trying to make it a certain way, whether consciously or not very consciously. We fall back into this a potter concoct, concocting objects. 
but we can also learn with the breath and similar things just to be with it. And that's something to come back to, that flow. Not so much the thingness of it, but the flow of it, the impermanence of it. When we catch our mind congealing around a sound, a memory, a thought. If you start thinking about something you're going to do today or tomorrow or next week, Notice you've created the appearance of some reality, which is not real. It's just another pot fabricated out of thought. Thought's not, in, in this case, not the problem. It's ignorance about thought that takes the object of thinking to be real. Thinking itself need not be the problem. It's thinking without understanding that deludes us. So every time we notice that congealing around a memory, a thought, a physical sensation, a sound, or whatever the sense experience may be, coming back to the breath or the movement of the body walking, one reason these are skillful practices is they can occur mindfully without without spinning these spinning another pot, not forming another lump of ice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.